0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we look into the Canadian connection, the Queen of Country Loretta Lynn, who passed away at the age of ninety yesterday, and how a Vancouver concert helped launch her to stardom. Why is it so tough for many adults to keep friends or make new ones? We speak with the author of the New York Times bestseller *Platonic*: How the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends, about where we're going wrong, and how to get it right. Dave Breckenridge of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun joins us to preview the United Conservative Party leadership race with the winner set to be announced on Thursday. Who is the front runner to become the next leader and premier of Alberta? And with a ranked ballot, what will it take to win? Starting tomorrow, businesses in Canada will be able to pass credit card fees on to their customers. We ask, will they? And what do consumers need to know? But first, the OPEC-plus alliance of oil exporting countries decided to sharply cut production to support sagging oil prices today, a move that could deal the struggling global economy another blow and raise pump prices again. It also eases the pressure on Russia as Ukraine's allies try to cut off the huge profits it gets from energy exports. We're going to start in Vienna, where the OPEC-plus alliance of oil exporting countries today decided to sharply cut production To support sagging oil prices, a move that could deal the struggling global economy, another blow and raise pump prices once again. Energy ministers meeting in Vienna at OPEC's headquarters, cut production by two or going to cut production by two million barrels per day starting in November at their first face-to-face meeting since the start of the pandemic. The move came despite furious lobbying from Washington who are hoping to keep gas prices down heading into the November midterms and to continue to put pressure on Russia and the huge profits it gets from energy exports. This is the diplomatic language from the Saudi energy minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman, who says the job of OPEC Plus is to ensure steady energy markets.
1: We will continuously prove that OPEC Plus is here not only to stay, but here to stay as a moderating force to bring about
0: stability. Now, of course, OPEC Plus includes Russia. The White House is not pleased. Here's spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre.
2: OPEC's decision uh, to cut production quotas is short-sighted. While the global economy is dealing with the continued negative impact of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, it's clear that OPEC Plus is aligning with with Russia with today's announcement.
0: So, are they? Joining me now is Rory Johnston, founder of Commodity Context. Thanks for your time.
3: Thanks for having me, Ben.
0: Well, OPEC meetings used to be big news. Uh, This one was the first in-person one in a long time, and it certainly didn't disappoint. What, uh, What have they decided and why?
3: Yeah, so just for perspective, this is the first time they've met in person since the beginning of the pandemic and everything that happened at that cut that kind of rescued the oil market. So we knew there was going to be something big happening at this event. And it's interesting because even even last week, this was kind of supposed to be a nothing event. It was supposed to be kind of a symbolic tilt uh, to support the price, but you, we didn't really expect huge fireworks. And over the last couple of days the kind of pre-meeting chatter turned tremendously bullish and deeply, deeply kind of fiery political. Um, So what we saw coming out of this meeting, kind of the nuts and bolts of it were that OPEC plus the producer group uh, agreed to a 2 million barrel a day cut across its quotas, So it's headline production target. The reason that this is kind of less than it, you know, at first meets the eye is that the group across the board has been underproducing chronically for the past couple of months and as of august which is the last official data we have for tracking they were underproducing as a total group by about 3.65 million barrels a day so huge right. kind of underproduction you know compare that to the 2 million barrel a day kind of uh, discussed cut but because of the way opec works all of these things are allocated on a pro rata basis so kind of proportionally across the producer group. So obviously, Saudi and Russia do more than smaller producers in the group. So accounting for all of that and accounting for that underproduction, this 2 million barrel a day cut likely means something closer to 900,000 barrels a day. So more than half of the cut is erased by this kind of quota math. Uh, But still, at the end of the day, 900,000 barrels a day in a market that is definitely on the edge of flirting with tightness off 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 again and on again, and, and particularly given the fact that we have this broader energy crisis and inflationary crisis uh, the world is facing definitely does kind of serve to tighten the market, put a floor under the oil price and obviously tremendously worry many, many Western governments.
0: Yeah, the, the, the politics of this is 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 always fascinating. Just I imagine listeners will want to know about the impact. You know, we've seen price gas prices go up again in Canada this week and last week. Uh, what kind of impact could this have on Canadian uh, drivers and and others? Uh, given that the impact isn't two million dollar two million barrels a day, it's actually more like nine hundred thousand.
3: Yeah, so I, you know, unless we get kind of material changes in the rest of the kind of global economy. So, you know, uh, sort of a let up in some of this financial market panic we've been seeing, a let up in some of this recessionary fear we've been seeing, and most acutely a let up in China's COVID zero lockdown policy, which has taken more than 2 million barrels a day of demand, kind of the exact same amount as the headline cut that OPEC, prom- OPEC Plus promised off the market if all those things came off, then we would be in a very different situation. I think that we would be back easily above $120 a barrel versus 90-something as of today or as of this morning. I would say all else equal, this you know reduces uh, the risk of further declines in the oil price and maybe gives an extra kind of $5 a barrel on the upside, given everything else we're seeing. But combined with you know, a, a return of Chinese demand and a potential uh, end to the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve releases, then you kind of end up in a kind of a firework scenario where combine all of that with the fact that, you know, uh, the EU's effective embargo on Russian crude, you know, uh, is set to uh, enter force. All of that, I think we could, you know, there's a, there's easily a scenario that we have much, much higher prices.
0: Yeah, not a lot of elasticity left in the system, right? And not a lot of give uh, anymore, if anything were to change. Uh, many people in Canada talk about exactly these kinds of scenarios when it comes to trying to boost domestic production uh, because of reliance on what one could call bad actors, but it's probably an unfair term. But, you know, OPEC, OPEC plus Russia, Saudi Arabia and so forth. Uh, do you think this fuels anything on that front in Canada, that discussion?
3: I think a lot of what we've been seeing over the past uh, kind of couple months, uh, most of this year really, is this kind of bringing back the idea of energy security to the forefront of the public discussion. I think that Canadian oil production and investment intention has always benefited from that kind of turn. That said, Canadian production is kind of defined by heavy capex, so like front-weighted big projects takes a long time to complete. And I think that in some ways, that's actually what the OPEC ministers were discussing uh, and kind of citing today by saying, look, the price is too low now. We've gone too far to the downside with WTI under 80 and everything else that – we actually are now risking a lack of investment, a lack of production growth, and then an even tighter situation you know, next year. So we can parse the politics of how much of this was really an altruistic attempt to balance the market and support investment in non-OPEC countries, and how much of this was a bit of a finger in the eye of the White House heading into midterm elections. I think that that, that is the debate that's happening right now, but I do think that The core of OPEC's point, particularly the core of the Saudi Arabian energy minister's point, is true, which is that we still aren't seeing enough investment, particularly in non-OPEC countries like Canada, like uh, the United States or or elsewhere, to satisfy a rebounded demand that we would have expected this year absent uh, China's lockdowns, and particularly if we do in fact see losses in russian production after this december 5th uh, deadline in the eu
0: to no longer to talk about the politics because the politics of this is fascinating the americans today clearly very unhappy or at least the white house is very unhappy about this they had lobbied quite a, quite hard to try to prevent these cuts from happening uh, what do you think went on there
3: Everything is happening at once right now. It's a very, very f- confusing time in the market. It's a confusing time in the politics of the market. I think first and foremost, so the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been kind of releasing an unprecedented flow of oil, upwards of a million barrels a day for the. For the you know the largest release in history, uh, the reserve is now back down to levels we haven't seen since the mid '80s. So all of this is happening at the same time, and I think part of the challenge is that when that release was initially kind of agreed upon back in you know March and April, when we were at the height of our concern over the loss of Russian barrels following the invasion of Ukraine, I think that was very justified in that moment to try and you know it was an unprecedentedly kind of expectedly tight market. I think the SPR release made a lot of sense there. But then over the kind of proceeding, you know, the the proceeding or or the the, the month since that agreement uh, and the SPR release began, we lost a huge amount of demand from China and we really didn't lose as many barrels. We thought we were going to lose out of Russia. So I think at that stage, you probably should have pulled back on the SPR release, which you haven't done. So the fact that we see the SPR continuing to release at kind of full force at the same time that OPEC is considering cutting now you kind of have very, very obvious kind of a physical manifestation of this, of this kind of loggerhead politics. I think that's deeply unhelpful for the oil market. An oil market right now needs, if anything else, a bit more stability, a bit more kind of predictability and having OPEC Plus go up against uh, the White House on this is is kind of a worst case scenario. So my my hope is that we do see the White House kind of pull back from that. But based on the comments, like you were mentioning, uh, very very displeased administration right now in the U.S. Uh, and as of yesterday, there was a there were there were a couple of quotes about how the White House was viewing the potential of this cut that we've now got as a potential hostile act. So I think. The language is very fiery. Uh, You know, what we saw out of the press conference seemed to be a a general dismissiveness of the White House and the kind of U.S.'s view on this. So it's a very, very, very messy time.
0: And I I was reading that uh, earlier in the week, uh, the White House spokesperson had said that the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve release would end at the end of the month as planned. Now that seems to have been reversed as well, at least according to comments from President Biden today. So this loggerheads continues.
3: Yeah, I mean that—that's what's that was confusing, right? Is that initially when the SPR release was was uh, kind of announced, the idea was that it was going to kind of go for six months and end at the end of October. Now, this is the confusing part today, is we're hearing uh, you know tal you know a discussion of another ten million barrels a day being released in November. But as far as I understand, this is actually the same overall total volume they plan to release. They've just been releasing it slightly slower than they had expected, uh-huh. so that six okay. months is stretching out. But at the same time, I think this is a great example. The market has so many things to follow right now and each one of these things takes you know you know an hour or so to kind of track down the specifics of what someone means that is just a recipe for a lot of volatility a very inefficient market and someone like myself was trying to catch it you know track it all down very very little sleep
0: Rory Johnston is with us this half hour. He's the founder of Commodity Context. We're talking about OPEC's decision today, its announcement today at its first in-person meeting uh, in Vienna in uh, quite a while since the beginning of the pandemic, an announcement of a cut of two million barrels a day um, and what impact that will have. Russia, now, What one of the context of all this, which is fascinating, is that obviously the West, Ukraine's allies are trying to put a sque- the squeeze on Russia's energy import profits or energy export profits rather uh this would seem to fly in the face of it and to make matters slightly more complicated uh russia's deputy prime minister was in the room today he was there
3: yeah. And I, and I think what's particularly interesting is I, I, you know, yesterday we got news that, that, uh, you know, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Novak, who is there representing, uh, Moscow was actually sanctioned by the United States. So this is a, a sanctioned member of the Russian administration, you know, flying into the EU to discuss a, oil production cut that is antithetical and has been kind of labeled as a hostile act by Washington. So this is like really, really kind of crazy moment in the kind of politics and geopolitics of this. Initially, even a couple of weeks ago, when this was first being discussed as a cut, it was it was clear from the beginning that, you know, while there was definitely some concern from Saudi Arabia, you know, Moscow was doing the, you know, uh, the lion's share of the pushing here. They wanted to cut back. They wanted to lift prices. They know that they're already getting huge discounts on their on their main kind of export blend, which is known as Urals. Uh, that's trading, you know, depending on the day between 20 and 30 dollars under benchmark WTI. Well, which is how we do that that, that much, huh? Yeah, exactly. So this, you know, you know, comparing for people kind of out west in Canada, this would be the, the the, you know, the comparison here is like the discount we discussed with WCS barrels or Western Canadian Select. So this is a huge differential, a huge opportunity cost for Russia. But their point, their their kind of goal here is, okay. well, if we're going to get 20 or 30 dollars off of our, you know, a discount on our on our barrels, well, what if we just try and push the overall price up and then we kind of wash out in the other side? And the other thing I think that has was weighing kind of very clearly in the mind of OPEC ministers is you know, OPEC is a production cartel. Uh, you know, they never call it that. It's a it's a producer group. It's a diplomatic and a political group, but it's effectively a cartel. On the other side, I think one of the strategic errors that the West and particularly kind of the White House has made in pushing for this proposed price cap on Russian uh, on Russian imports. So you know, not paying more than a certain amount of money per barrel on imports for of Russian crude so that you can kind of keep the volume flows to the economy so that you don't have a, you know, exacerbate the energy crisis, but you do stop some money from going to Moscow and and further fueling the war in Ukraine. But they discussed it initially as, quote, a buyer's cartel here i think this was a strategic mistake because as soon as you say that word you get all of the kind of you know hairs on the back of opec you know ministers next standing up on end. They're like whoa we can't tolerate another cartel in the market so i think that was a strategic mistake and i think that in very very blanketly kind of put you know the white house and opec at loggerheads from the very beginning around this point so whether or not this is truly to offset recessionary fear or a bit of a pushback, and like I was saying, a finger in the eye of the Biden administration for the, you know, what I think certain OPEC members would consider hubris uh, in attempting to to kind of constrain or control the oil market. I think it's, you know, it, it's still up for debate, and I think it is probably a bit of both.
0: Oil and politics, Rory, always fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we played a lot of Loretta Lynn last night on the show in tribute to the Queen of Country who passed away at the age of 90 yesterday. Uh, Of course, the tributes and the condolences continued again today. And so do the reminiscence about her incredible career and some incredible stories about where it all began. Uh, One that got its start while she was living in Tacoma, Washington. Actually, she wasn't living in Tacoma. Uh, She was living near the border. And uh, she appeared on a show in Tacoma uh, called the Barcade Jamboree, hosted by Buck Owens. I I can't say it's a show I'm familiar with or watched. Uh, But she won a talent contest. She then started playing regular gigs. She would get about $5 a show. Here's how Lynn describes that time in a documentary called Honky Tonk Girl.
1: I got the job of singing on Saturday night for $5 a night. I saved up my $5 every Saturday night, and I bought me um, a white cowboy hat and a pair of acme white boots, a black skirt with fringe on, which I've got them in my museum, and a shirt with the red roses. Annie Oakley couldn't have held a candle to me. I'm telling you, I thought I was the prettiest thing ever hit the street.
2: It was on TV that Vancouver businessman Norm Burley heard Loretta sing. He decided then and there to record her and founded the Zero Records label, especially for Loretta.
0: Now, it seems there might be some missing history in there. Um that involves a Canadian named Norm Burley, a Manitoban, a lumber merchant who caught her show on TV, I gather, uh, and invited her to Vancouver, I think. And the rest, they say, is history. She was living in Custer, Washington, which actually isn't that far from the Canadian border. Well, there's no one better to share that story and to correct my history than writer and Vancouver historian Rob Howitson, who successfully championed uh, the Fraser View Chicken Coop, where that Lynn concert was performed, as the site for a Vancouver Heritage Foundation plaque as well. Rob, thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Ah, oh, you're welcome, Ben.
0: What a great, what a great story, and 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 for it to come to light now too, it's been it's been wonderful to see. But I wasn't I wasn't aware of it. I think a lot of people mightn't have been. Um, but just on the Lynn, I mean, you must have your fascination with her time in Vancouver must have been born of a real appreciation of her as an artist as well.
2: I wasn't uh, much of a country music fan before I got involved in this story. Um, it, was, it was tracking down this story that made me appreciate her career and all the hard work she did and all the hit songs and albums that she churned out. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm really grateful for the, that, I came, that I stumbled across this story.
0: Yeah, tell me about the Vancouver connection because, as you can tell from a lot of the documentaries, it sort of goes from she was in she was on the show in Tacoma, and then she was in LA making a record, and it kind of skips the, skips some of that history that I think uh, is important or is at least really interesting to us.
2: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I feel particularly sorry for the people who watched the movie based on her life, uh, coal right. miner's daughter with Sissy Spacek. Uh, if you watch that movie, it's a great movie. I recommend people watch it, but it does a very poor job of, uh, of explaining how she got her career started. Um, the, the truth is that uh, the major breakthrough for her uh, came in Vancouver in 1959 when she came up from Custer, Washington to perform at a backyard jam session in the Fraser View neighborhood of Vancouver that was held in a chicken coop that had been converted a private party space.
0: Which is, I I gather, was kind of what she was used to playing at that that stage. Like this was a, but this was a, was this a well-known spot?
2: No, it it was not a well-known spot. It was a very hyper-local spot. The property owner, Mac McGregor, had built a little uh, house in 1949 on uh, Kent Avenue, one of the last streets in Vancouver before you hit the north arm of the Fraser River. And, uh, when he bought the property, I think it came with this large chicken coop that was left over from an older farmstead. And he didn't know what to do with the chicken coop. He didn't want to raise chickens, but he liked to party. So he converted it to his, his rec room. And, uh, and the rest, yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah,
0: this, that, that doesn't sound like it, it was necessarily, uh, I, I mean, imagine building codes and so on were different back then, but it doesn't sound like it was hundred percent legal either. Um, so he's, does Now, what's the connection with the show in Tacoma? Because I gather that she had been seen there, and that was sort of led, thus that, the regional aspect of it. Thus she was brought to Vancouver. Is that correct?
2: It gets complicated. Uh, there's, ah. three, there's three principal players in this story. There's Loretta Lynn, right. and she's always maintained that she was spotted by uh, Norm Burley in, in Vancouver when, when she appeared right. on Buck Owens TV show in Tacoma. Mm -hmm. And then Norm Burley was the majority investor for a tiny record label in Vancouver called Zero Records. And we would later learn uh, that Norm Burley uh, claimed that he heard about Loretta when a DJ in Washington State sent him uh, some sort of demo tape. And then the third and most important, in my opinion, uh, player in this uh, saga is the Canadian music producer Don Grashy from Thunder Bay, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And he's the real deal. You can look him up. He... He helped countless artists over the course of his career get their starts and get recorded. And uh, he had come out to Vancouver in 1959 to get involved in the tiny label Zero Records. And uh, uh, that's when he spotted Loretta Lynn at the Chicken Coop and signed her and helped her record her first hit single, I'm a Honky Tonk Girl.
0: Yeah. So, because there's also there's that sort of myth that Zero Records was created just for her, but in some ways it was already there. She just happened to be the uh, the star they were looking for, or at least the talent they were looking for.
2: Yeah, Don Grashi had already signed some artists to Zero uh, before he uh, came across uh, Loretta,
0: and, and then the rest is kind of history. As because then she goes to LA, records this record. She she goes into great detail about that recording session in that same documentary. Um and, and, and then from there she's her, her career sort of starts to lift, right? It's not immediate though, I don't think.
2: That's true. It wasn't she wasn't an overnight success. Um even after she got that hit that single in her hand, that, that single I'm a honky donk girl charted as high as number fourteen on the charts, which wasn't bad. And she took that to Nashville, and she was able to knock on doors there with that as her calling card. But uh, even from there, even after she signed with the Wilburn brothers in Nashville, I, she still worked very hard to climb her way up. And, and I, I personally don't think she would be the household name she is today uh, if it hadn't been for that movie that was made about her life in 1980.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I saw that movie in 1980, and I think I've, I've definitely seen it again, but not recently. I'll have to watch it again because I forget. Mo- I remember I was obviously Sissy Spacek, but I forget most of the most of the rest of it. Uh, other than you know, obviously, I've watched documentaries and so on. You spoke to Loretta Lynn while doing this research about this. Uh, what was that like, and, and what was her what was her reaction to to some of the things you asked her about?
2: I just listened, uh, just before I came on here with you, to the audio clip from the interview I did with her over the phone in 2012. And the first question was, you know, uh, how did Zero Records find you? And she told the usual story about being on Buck Owens' TV show in Tacoma. Uh, And then I started asking her about Don Grashy's claims, about him discovering her at the Chicken Coop. And by the end of our little chat... She kinda of comes she kinda of comes around and acknowledges that if she says if that's what Don Grashy remembers, then then that must be what happened. And so Yeah. I was, yeah. That's that's the closest I was able to pin her down. <laughs>
0: It is a long time ago, mind you. Yeah. Um, I was picturing when she was talking about buying herself that hat and uh, and the frilly and the frilled and the fringed skirt and the boots. I was picturing her wearing those at the chicken coop. Uh, <laughs> you found her to be quite. She was quite. I mean, she was. She was. She was. She didn't mind talking, did she?
2: No, not at all. She was very giving of her time, and uh, incredibly down to earth, and without guile. There were times during this research where I thought she was intentionally withholding information about the chicken coop maybe she didn't want her origin story to be on the canadian side of the border mm-hmm. after all her story is all about you know the american dream and going from rags to riches from kentucky all the way to her palatial mansion in tennessee um can the, the canadian connection might have been a bit awkward for her story um although i recognize she would always credit norm burley with his money for you know the money that he gave her Uh, in the form of zero records. Um, But in the end, I've decided, you know, like you say, it was a long time uh, between then and now, and people's memories aren't perfect. And so we have Loretta with her version of events. We have Don Grashy's with his version of events, and we've got Norm's version of events. And we just have to accept that that's the reality of, of, of life.
0: You did, though, um campaign and successfully campaigned to have that plaque that historical plaque put up uh, where the chicken coop was so for here on in there will always be that connection between Loretta Lynn and what is a very kind of out of the way part of the city needless to say of Vancouver
2: yes yeah the Vancouver Heritage Foundation uh, was instrumental in helping us put that plaque there across the street from where the chicken coop once stood and I'm glad it's there Um, Not only does it speak to the Loretta Lynn story, but it kind of uh, acknowledges that, you know, this neighborhood down here um, by the river in Vancouver used to be a a kind of a rural area, industrial, and very working class, and it's now changing, it's gentrifying, lots of condo towers are sprouting up along the river. It's wonderful to have that little plaque there just to remind people that just 60 years ago, 70 years ago, this was a very different place.
0: Yeah, and, and not a wholly inappropriate place for a coal miner's daughter to find success, right? I mean, it wasn't, uh, she wasn't playing downtown at that point either.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, being discovered in a chicken coop, if you're a country music star, there couldn't be a better discovery story than being discovered in a chicken coop near the railway tracks right by the river.
0: It makes sense. It just, I guess, as you pointed out, when uh, from her ranks to riches story, maybe it was just on the wrong side of the border. Although, I mean, living in Custer, it was not at all surprising that she would have ended up in Vancouver, right? It's all very close.
2: That's right. And there was an active little country music scene in Vancouver and on the uh, Washington state side as well. And they used to, musicians would easily cross the border, not like today. And they could collaborate with one another. And, you know, you might have a band that had two players on one side of the border and two players on the other.
0: What now Rob you've um you've talked I know you've talked a lot about this um uh, about the work that you've done it must be nice as well to be able to talk about it again and share the stories that you've been sharing what what will you do now with with this uh, with this trove of knowledge that you have
2: I still would like to put together a little book about the chicken coop there isn't a ton of information there um because it was a simple little place uh Run by simple people. (laughs) But uh, I do think it would be nice to get it into book form so that people could uh, reference that in the future.
0: Well, Rob, when you do, um, you can come back and tell us all about it again. I
2: will. I'll do that Uh, then.
0: Yes, Rob Howitz, thank you so much for your time tonight. What a great story. Thank you very much. Now, I apologize in advance for starting this segment with yet more statistics, but the statistics often tell a big story. In 2021, 12% of Americans said they had no close friends. 12% of Americans said they had no close friends. That's up from 3% in 1990. Perhaps for some that's a choice, but for many it is likely not. Instead it leaves them isolated and alone, and according to experts it is a vicious circle. The lonelier you are, the more your perception of how others perceive you is impacted and your ability to make friends suffers it all predates the pandemic even though no doubt the pandemic made things worse it's been called an epidemic of loneliness bad for your physical and mental health at the very least here's amy banks of the international center for growth in connection
4: when we're isolated and have that feeling that we're being left out um... We have an alarm that goes off that causes us to have pain. So the pain is is
1: a marker of that distress. People that are lonely are in really great pain. And it's every bit as real as the pain of a physical injury or illness.
0: So what can be done? How do you build or maintain lasting friendships? How do you connect with new people or deepen existing relationships? Joining me now is Marissa G. Franco, a psychology PhD speaker and author of the New York Times bestselling, Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. Marissa G. Franco, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be talking to you, Ben.
0: I guess to start at the beginning, loneliness. Uh, we hear a lot about it, but I think we understand more and more now that in many ways, loneliness is 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 can be medically, uh, mentally, and in many different ways, very destructive to us
1: hmm. Yeah. So the, the commonly cited statistic is it's as toxic as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, you know, we talk about how diet and exercise affect our longevity and there's so, so much public health movement around those things, but how strong your social network is actually affects how long you live more so than your diet and how much you exercise.
0: Why is it then, and this is a very broad question, but in general terms, why is it then that adults seem to have so much trouble, some adults, not all, but many adults have a hard time keeping and making new friends?
1: The problem is that when we're kids, we can form friendships more organically because uh, what sociologist Rebecca G. Adams calls is the ingredients for friendships happening organically, repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. Whereas when we're adults, we don't really inhabit those settings anymore. Like maybe we see people in a repeated way at work, but we're not necessarily vulnerable with them. And so what that means is that if you rely on your template from children, from when you were a kid, you might assume, oh, friendship should happen organically, right? But it doesn't. It doesn't happen that way in adulthood. And in fact, research finds that people that think that friendship happens based on luck are lonelier five years later whereas those that see it happening based on effort are less lonely five years later.
0: Because it feels like when watching children, every moment is an opportunity for friendship when you're a child, right? It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, it is an opportunity to make a friend. And as adults, we start to compartmentalize and then that changes.
1: Yeah. And I I think, you know, one of kids' secrets is that they don't have as much baggage around being rejected yet, right? And And that, I think, is fundamentally one of the biggest barriers that I see to making friends. People are so afraid of rejection. There's a theory called risk regulation theory that argues we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our view of how likely we are to get rejected. So if you're always thinking you'll be rejected, you're not going to invest in your relationships at all.
0: And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because as you're starting out to say, what really matters as an adult when it comes to friendship is effort, right?
1: Exactly. And here's the truth, Ben. People are less likely to reject us than we think. Um, this is based off of research where strangers were interacting and then asked, how much do you like the other person? And when people predicted how much does the other person like you, they underestimated how like they were. And the more self-critical people were, the more pronounced this underestimation was. So fundamentally, people are less likely to reject you than you think they are. But the problem is that we're so afraid of rejection, we never actually test this assumption and use it to correct our thinking about this.
0: You pointed out, and the the title of your book says it all, that we often place such an importance on romantic uh, connections and, and reject, or not reject, but neglect to some extent friendships, uh, but that platonic relationships are as important, if not more important in some senses, than romantic ones.
1: Absolutely. Yes, yes. I, I started the book saying that these views on romantic relationships being the only form of love that matters or defines my worth as a woman, how that really impacted me, and I realized how wrong that was especially when i had all these loving friends around me and i didn't count that as love but it does also hurt people in romantic relationships to just go to one person for support you know the research finds that when you go to different people to support you through different emotions you experience greater well-being that if you make a friend not only are you less depressed but your spouse becomes less depressed that when you're in conflict with your spouse it affects your release of the stress hormone cortisol but not if you have quality connection outside the marriage so friendship, whether you're single or you're married, I think, you know, what I also argue is that friendship is required to be in a healthy marriage as well.
0: And you've pointed out that for men, it can often be difficult and they often come to rely on their partners a lot more for friendships and that leaves them particularly isolated.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I realized that men's scripts for friendships tend to be a lot more limited than women's are. And and part of that is because of something called homohysteria, which is men's fear of being perceived as gay. So all of these behaviors that are required to create friendship and platonic intimacy, like reaching out or being vulnerable or sharing that, telling someone how great you think they are, right? Like men feel more pressure to avoid doing these things for fear that it could affect how people perceive their sexual orientation or that they will experience shame from it. Whereas women um, I don't think experience homohysteria to the same degree and feel a lot more freer to express all these intimate behaviors in their friendships. Yeah.
0: I, I guess, I guess men struggle with just even the minor intimacy that comes with being with having to reach out to someone to try to strike up a friendship.
1: Yeah. Ben, I, I had someone that I interviewed for my book say, Oh, I can't reach out to him. He might think I'm like interested in him. And I was just thinking, but then how are you going to make a friend? If you can't reach out to anybody,
0: Tell me, though, about social media, because I feel like social media has played a big part in, in you know, it's not bad, but it does allow us to isolate and not make an effort because we feel like we're connecting in some way, but it doesn't feel like it brings you the same level of satisfaction as true friendship.
1: Absolutely. And and the research on social media is is very complex. And what it finds is that how social media impacts our level of connection depends on how we use it. Those people that use it to replace in-person connection every day, they're You know, swiping through TikTok videos rather than making friends in real life, they tend to be a lot more lonely. Whereas those that use it to facilitate in person connections, to coordinate plans, and reach out on Instagram to say we should hang out, it's been a while, they're actually less lonely than people that aren't on social media. So it really depends on how we use it, but unfortunately, most of us use it in ways that foster more disconnection. We're just scrolling, we're just lurking for hours at a time, and that fundamentally is negatively impacting our mental health and our level of connectedness.
0: Our guest this half hour is Marissa G Franco. She's a psychology PhD, a speaker and author of the New York Times bestseller Platonic: How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. We're talking about the very important issue of making and keeping friends these days. Always important, but it feels more important these days as we've uh, after we've emerged from two years of relative isolation, not for all of us, but at least for some. Um there are lots of ways you can go about making friends. Marissa, I know that some are successful and some aren't, but I guess that the importance is is to put yourself out there and to make sure you're in, in environments, as we we're talking about children later, where you have opportunities to make friends. So it's not going to a play by yourself; it's going to a place where you can interact with other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Places that are high in what's I, what I call social permission, which means permission to talk to someone that you didn't come come in with, right? And that's like social clubs or classes that you might take with other people versus the movie theater or the play that you're sitting at alone. Uh, so that's really important. I. The mindset shift that I I recommend to people is you have to assume people like you because when researchers told people to make this assumption, they became warmer, friendlier, more open, even when that wasn't necessarily true. So fundamentally, it helps us be brave enough to initiate connections with other people, and you can also, you know, reach out to people that you've knew that you've dis that you um, want to reconnect with, right? These people from your past, because the most common reason friendship fizzles is because we've fallen out of touch, not because there was any conflict or tension. So, reaching out to those people from your past to say. Oh, hey, I was just thinking about you wanted to check in and see how you're doing. And you could take it from there to be like, oh, I'd actually love to find a time for us to reconnect. Because there's actually a study that found that when you text people to reconnect, they actually appreciate it more than you think they do. And the more um, actually the the less connected you were originally, the more that they appreciate it.
0: Wow. I mean, it makes sense to go back to people who you were Mm -hmm. friends with, who maybe you moved to different cities, or they moved away, or things have changed. It makes sense to go back to those people because you already know them, right? So you don't have to uh, forge new contacts with new people, although that can be fun as well. Um, You've said that that people do something called covert avoidance, even when they're out there trying to make friends. And I thought that was a really interesting concept.
1: Yeah. So what I recommend when you're making friends is to show up to something that's repeated over time, just like what I talked about with friends happen organically, if it's repeated interaction and shared vulnerability. So, So that's like taking anything you're interested in and doing it in community, a walking group, a hiking club, a language class, a book club, a meditation class, right? But the thing is, you don't just have to show up you also have to overcome covert avoidance, which is our tendency to show up physically and check out mentally. We're on our phone. We are, you know, pretending to watch the game. We're walking off alone. We're talking to the one person we already know. You have to be able to engage with people and say, you know, hey, my name is Marissa. How long have you been coming to this? How have you been enjoying it? You have to show interest in other people because fundamentally, according to the theory of inferred attraction, people like people that they think like them. So, being really good at creating connections is about showing people in your life that you that you like them.
0: Going through this whole process um, of writing this book, what what stood out to you at the moment? What did you learn that you didn't think you that you thought you might know a lot about going in, but realized that maybe there was some surprises there for you. I always find that really interesting for something like an ex- what you went through because it's really an idea. You're sort of going through a journey for yourself as well as writing something. And I was wondering what you may have learned that surprised you in writing Platonic.
1: Yeah, Ben, so many things. Every chapter, I'm like, I screwed this up. <laughs> Y'all, um, we could all improve, myself included. One, one big lesson I learned was that, um, I was always a conflict avoider in friendship. I would try to pull away and get over it on my own. And when I read the study that found that open empathic conflict actually is linked to deeper intimacy, I realized that, oh, I'm actually harming and sabotaging my friendships when I try to get over it on my own, which basically looks like me then withdrawing from the friendship, right? And that giving, not bringing up the conflict was almost like me seeing a friend as guilty before I gave them a trial, right? Because there were things that I was angry about that I had misperceived. I I thought a friend had never responded to this email, but they actually had and I had missed Mm -hmm. it, right? Um, so I realized the potential for conflict to actually create more intimacy and more closeness and I started actually addressing problems with my friends.
0: Human relationships are so complicated, aren't they i mean that, that therein lies the basis of this all they are compli- you know they are simply are very simple and very complicated all at once, especially when it comes to misperceptions or misconceptions about the way things have happened and so on, so you're right, I suppose. Uh, being open about it and talking about it probably helps always.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like I'm invested enough in you to want to bring this up so we can heal instead of pulling away.
0: One thing that you brought up as well that I thought was, um, was, was very telling was that loneliness actually alters how you see the world, that mm-hmm. it changes the way you see the world. So it becomes self-perpetuating and getting of that mindset is probably the most important first step
1: yeah yeah it's not just a feeling it's a it's a way of viewing the world and we we know that when we were lonely when we were sort of evolving you were alone on the savannah you were separated from your tribe you were in danger you had to be on hyper alert for any threats that came your way unfortunately this is still our mind on loneliness lonely people are more likely to report that people are rejecting them even when they're not They report not liking humanity. They report not liking their roommate as much, not after they interact with someone, they don't like that person as much. They are more hostile in reaction to perceived slights, right? So they're basically in this place of, you know, self-protection where they both want to connect with someone, but they also want to withdraw from people. Because the thought is, if I try to connect with people, I'm going to be rejected and harmed. So fundamentally, if the choice is between connection and harm, um, you know, being alone and being safe or being connected and being unsafe, right? Then I'm going to choose to be alone. I'm going to sort of choose to be lonely. So our brain plays all of these tricks on us that unfortunately makes it very hard to come out of chronic loneliness. And actually, the interventions that have been most successful with loneliness have actually been about changing the way people think when they're lonely. So when you're lonely, you can be t- instructed to still think that other people like you and think that other people value you and do nice things for other people instead of going into this defensive self-protective mode.
0: It feels like at least we've recognized that this is a problem, something that we didn't talk. I mean, I don't remember talking about this growing up. I mean, it feels like it's something relatively new, but we now recognize perhaps late and perhaps it seems ridiculous that we didn't recognize it earlier, but the value of friendship.
1: Yeah, and it is sad, I think, that it's taken us this long for because it's only become so much more extreme. Like loneliness has been increasing since the fifties. In twenty twelve, it's started to spike because that was around when the smartphone became widely used. So and I, I think, you know, I, can't, I won't go into the research here, but really to have a healthy society, we need to be able to to trust others, which friendship facilitates, right? There's so many ways we have to trust our, our government, for example, yeah. um, and trust our neighbors, right, for society to function. So a disconnected society is not going to be a healthy society. So it's just important from so many levels, I think, from the policy level to the individual level that we focus on allowing people to foster greater connection.
0: Marissa G. Franco, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And it's time for Journalism Corner this week. Our weekly chat with a fascinating journalist from somewhere across the country. First, uh, a text from Wayne in Raleigh. Uh, Hi, Ben. I used to use cash fairly frequently these days, but ran into trouble at Ben & Jerry's in Virginia Beach, Virginia this summer. They don't take cash. My dad is rolling over in his grave these days. Uh, Thanks for that, Wayne. I was saying I was just in the UK. I was in London. And uh, a lot of places don't take cash. And you can just imagine that that's going to come here sooner or later because it's just so much easier, I guess, for companies, for smaller, especially businesses, retail spots, restaurants, and so on, not to use cash. You know, just It's quicker, isn't it? Well, to Alberta now, as promised, where the leadership char- change at the helm of the party and the province triggered when Jason Kenney announced his resignation back in May comes to a conclusion tomorrow. Seven candidates are fighting for the job. Uh, the front runner appears to be Danielle Smith, the former Wild Rose party leader. And certainly a lot of debate around this race is centered on her proposal called the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which in theory would grant the province the right to refuse enforcement, or refuse to enforce federal laws and court rulings deemed harmful to the interests or a federal intrusion. Here is Danielle Smith.
1: I think that um, the approach that I'm taking is one, in fact, that Albertans have been asking for for some time. So I do feel like we've got a mandate to defend the Constitution and defend the Charter of Rights and Freedoms.
0: critics including legal scholars say such a bill is not only illegal but it would create a constitutional crisis kenny himself has said the act would turn the province into a banana republic here is jason kenny
4: the so-called sovereignty act uh, would effectively take us to the brink of separation from the canadian federation would shred the rule of law and would do devastating damage to jobs the economy and the prospect of pipelines So
0: this is what is going on in the foreground. In the background, people are actually still able to vote, I think, up until tomorrow. Uh, This isn't all Albertans voting, by the way, for a person who will not only be the new leader of the UCP, but also their new premier designate. uh, That's down to United Conservative Party members by preferential ballot, meaning you rank your favorite and work down from there. And we will know the result, we believe, by this time tomorrow for sure. Uh, Joining me now with more on this is Dave Breckenridge. He's the managing editor of the Edmonton Journal at Edmonton Sun and host of the Ten Three Podcast and a regular here on a little more conversation. Thanks so much for your time tonight.
4: Not a problem, Ben. Glad to be here.
0: So is I guess I mean this is it. We're down to uh, we're down to the nitty gritty. We'll know tomorrow. Is uh, is Daniel Smith believed to be in the lead? What could go
4: wrong? Uh yeah. I mean, it's one of those it's one of those tricky uh, leadership races where you know you can't do public opinion polls because, as you mentioned in the little preamble. Not all Albertans can vote, so public opinion doesn't necessarily factor in here. Um, we've seen some polling of UCP members, and we've seen some polling um, that suggests that Danielle Smith is is in the lead, is the front runner, and it I think it ultimately comes down to what the ballots look like. I, I you know I. I referenced the federal conservative race that just saw Pierre Poiliev win. He won a majority on the first ballot. The question is, does Daniel Smith have enough going for her right now? If these polls are to be believed, these polls of UCP members, if if she is the front runner, does she have enough steam on the first ballot to to carry a victory? Or does she have enough for a majority in the first ballot? Not, none of the polls that I've seen suggest that she has that kind of support for a first ballot victory. So I guess, you know, we'll see what happens Thursday evening. But could she conceivably win on, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth ballot? Sure. It, it all depends on, on how she does on that first vote. I've heard someone, I heard uh, a colleague of mine say that if she's got 45% of support on the first ballot, it's likely a done deal. If, you know, she's in the 40 or less, could be tricky. We could have an Andrew Scheer situation, you know, if you cast your minds back a few years to the federal conservative leadership race where Andrew Scheer kind of surprised a lot of people and and beat out perceived frontrunner Maxime Bernier to take the federal conservative leadership. So, it all, you know, it all it all comes down to the ballots. And, and as you say, uh, we'll know 24 hours from now where we sit. Yeah,
0: I, I covered the liberal leadership race when Stefan Dio won, if you can imagine the surprise in the room when that happened. Uh, we all know that this is, that wasn't preferential rank. We all know what happens when uh, when people have to list their candidates and when you have one candidate who can be a bit polarizing, such as Danielle Smith appears to be, um, if she's nobody's second choice, then that changes the whole dynamic, doesn't it? Who would be the other potentials? I, mean, no, I know obviously Brian Jean has been, his name's mentioned a lot, Travis Taves, uh, Leela here, uh, Rajan Swani, uh, Rebecca Schultz. Todd Lowen, uh, there's a lot of people out there. I hope I got all their names right. Um, but certainly was, Brian Jean seems to... Hang on. <laughs> I, I did study them all, by the way. I do do that. But I think Brian Brian Jean, obviously someone who thought might be a frontrunner going in.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, he's still... If you were to look at the candidates, and, and I feel like because of his name recognition, because of his past as opposition leader, look, this is a guy who, after Daniel Smith and several of her Wildrose MLAs crossed the floor to join the progressive conservatives under Jim Prentice's premiership. Everyone thought, well, maybe that's the death knell for the Wildrose party. Well, no, a lot of people in the Wildrose party didn't want to go join the PCs. And so they stuck around and this guy, Brian Jean, former conservative MP from Fort McMurray comes in to take leadership of the Wildrose and wound up being official opposition leader after voters told the PCs to take a hike and they elected the NDP as as government back in 2015. So Brian Jean has name recognition. Brian Jean has a track record of being an effective opposition leader. Now, do enough members want to see him as premier? I don't know. It's it's remains to be seen. I think it's really interesting what's going to happen with these, you know, these second place ballots, because you're right. If, if, you're a candidate who no one likes as their second choice. You could be first place on the first ballot and then not win. But I have a sense that there are enough Brian Jean voters who probably look at the candidates and think that Daniel Smith may be their second place vote. And there's enough Todd Lowen voters who Todd Lowen was, you know, famously kicked out of of caucus for criticizing the premier over COVID health restrictions. He's a rural MLA he's kind of tapping into the same support that Daniel Smith has. And so if you get enough second place votes from Todd Lowen's camp and you get enough second place votes from Brian Jean's camp, if you're in a good position after the first ballot, you could find yourself premier. That's not to count out Brian, uh, Travis Taves, Travis Taves, seen as another front runner in this race seen as kind of the more establishment candidate. He's, you know, a Kenny cabinet minister. Mm-hmm. He was most recently finance minister. Um, he's kind of running on continuing the the path that the government set out under Jason Kenny. And, you know, there were in the leadership review back in May, it was only fifty one it was 51% of the, party members who voted there that wanted to see Kenny stick around so can Travis Tays tap into those people who felt the government Kenny and the government were doing a good job it's it, I mean it's fascinating math and it's one of those things where I wish I could I could predict I wish I could know what was going to happen but I also like this this on un- this sense of the unknown where you think you might know what's going to happen but you could you you live to be surprised in this business. Absolutely.
0: Um... Can any of them, I mean, I, I guess, is there a sense, and are people watching this? Because I got the sense from from reading about and listening and watching the news and so forth that there was a bit of a disconnect with what uh, candidates were arguing about, such as the sovereignty, the sovereignty proposal, um, versus some of the real pocketbook issues that are really on people's minds in Alberta right now, and that the UCP leadership race kind of drifted into something a bit strange and a bit out of touch, it felt like.
4: Well, it, I mean, I... I agree with you there. I found the whole race kind of strange for those reasons is you had, and you have these, these very important economic issues. You have, you know, inflation uh, you have a healthcare system that has been rocked by two plus years of uh, uh, viral pandemic. Um, there's questions around the K to 12 school curriculum. There's post-secondary funding. There's, you know, what do we do as the country and the world potentially moves away from, from oil. There's all of these fascinating issues. And then Daniel Smith comes along and taps into, to a a sense of anger that that's been prevalent within the party for a while and uses that as rocket fuel to, to let her campaign take off. And then everyone got up in arms about it and, everyone just started attacking that position and so that became the overarching narrative in the race but you're right there is a disconnect and the the race hasn't been discussing the issues that that i think that a lot of people were hoping that it would but at the same time people in alberta at least i think are fascinated or or at least you know they're on tenterhooks waiting to see who the premier is going to be and is it going to be this candidate who's, who's expressed a desire to be very combative with the federal government and, and even with the public service here, you know, Daniel Smith has talked about, you know, Alberta health services, letting people down during the pandemic and being too top heavy and has talked about even the, the, the public service within the provincial government, you know, needing to, Kind of get in line with the way the government wants to go, or, or needing to cut down the size of the public service, and and yeah, it's it is fascinating. And with all this, I, you know, the
0: the the NDP waiting in the wings, right? There's an election in the spring. Someone that the Albertans <laughs> will have their say soon enough.
4: Yeah, I, and I mean that's the other fascinating piece of it, right? Is is this idea that the UCP could elect a leader who, while he or she may be more popular than his or her predecessor could still come out of this without the kind of bump that you would normally get after a leadership race where the party sees a bump in the polls could be really behind the eight ball when it comes to fighting a campaign against uh, an NDP that has been fundraising for years and has been really attacking the government every single day on every single issue and seems to be spoiling for a fight. And, The only thing that might give the UCP a glimmer of hope is the fact that some recent polling that I've seen, I think was reported on by my post-media colleague, Rick Bell at the Calgary Sun, um, is that, sure, people may not like Daniel Smith, or they may not like Brian Jean, or they may not like Travis Taves. Broadly, across Alberta, they're not exactly sold on the NDP and Rachel Notley either. There's still a there's still a huge undecided. I think there might be a lot of UCP voters who've kind of parked their vote in the undecided camp for now. And and so there's some opportunity there for potentially to have a provincial election that's more competitive than the NDP would want and more competitive than a lot of people who don't like the UCP may think it's going to be at this point.
2: We will never support misguided policies, fear-mongering or the seizure of private property. Alberta taxpayers pay over $750 million per year for the RCMP and we will not tolerate taking officers off the streets in order to confiscate the property of law-abiding firearms owners.
0: Tyler Chandro, Alberta's justice minister. There, uh, another fight, uh, Dave Breckenridge, between Ottawa and the federal government. This one about this buyback program that goes back to that 2020 legislation banning more than 1,500 sty- assault-style weapons. Uh, Alberta doesn't doesn't want to help out with this. Who's on the Who's in the right here? Do you think, according to the letter of the law, at
4: least? Well, I mean, I mean, first off. It's not like Alberta likes to fight with Ottawa or anything. No, no, of course not. (laughs) New and different around these parts. Um, Look, as much as it probably pains me to say it, uh, it feels like the federal government is in the right here. No matter what you think about the Liberals' gun policy, I find it a bit rich for Tyler Shandro to start talking about taking officers off the streets in order to confiscate the property of law abiding firearms owners, as he puts it. Yes. You can argue that, you know, up until two years ago, these people were law abiding gun owners and then the the feds come along and, and ban this style of weapon. And then what do you do with all of these guns? You know, and I'm sure the the vast majority of them have never been used to commit a crime, will never be used to commit a crime. But as it stands, the government has said that they are now illegal and you have to get rid of them or you have to make them unusable. Right. So under the letter of the law, it sounds like the the feds would be in the right. That said, it it is for for gun owners, and I don't I'm not a gun owner. I, I support I support the right of people to own guns. As a gun owner, I could see why this would be a huge slap in the face. It's it's these people have been doing nothing wrong for years. And then the federal government comes along and says, oh, yeah, that thing that you own in your house that you use and store appropriately is now illegal. And now you have to get rid of it. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah. Looking at at the politics of it, all, though, I mean, it is we were just talking about Daniel Smith and her Sovereignty Act and telling, you know, passing a law that would allow the province to ignore federal federal law and jason Kenney coming out and saying it would create a banana republic and here we have one of jason Kenney's cabinet ministers saying we're not going to enforce this federal law in alberta they can, i mean kenny and and the and the ucp can't have it both ways on the issue can they
0: I think they probably, I mean, what struck me about this is that the idea that people would be upset, I guess, and the politics of it is clearly politics, and there's no problem with that. The idea that somehow this is a public safety issue and taking these officers off the street would, I mean, that to me just sounded ridiculous. I mean, it, the whole thing it, is a bit, is a bit, is a bit, I mean, it's all politics, right? Really?
3: Yeah.
4: Oh, I mean, there, I think there, there is something to be said that like, how are these resources going to be allocated? And, and I mean, it True. wasn't just Tyler Shandro. After Shandro came out. We had, we had Saskatchewan and Manitoba also come out and say, wait a second, you know, we have issues with response times in our rural detachments. We have issues with people being able to access police, and now you want to come out and say, we're going to take these officers and they're going to go. And anyone who's got a registration for this firearm, we're going to send these officers out to all these houses. What, like, what about the break-ins? What about the property crime? True. That's going on in, in our rural communities. Why is the, why are we going to prioritize the RCMP for that? I know that this is that some of this all has to be worked out. I understand that there's a meeting of justice ministers with the federal counterpart next week. um, And so some of the, the, Ins and outs of all this are going to be worked out, but the, the the provinces do have a point when it comes to allocation of police resources because I'm sure many listeners understand that there are issues with getting police to where you are when you need them in smaller communities.
0: Dave, I'm running out of time. Thanks so much as always for joining me. We'll look forward to seeing what you have to say about uh, tomorrow night's leadership race results.
4: Excellent. Thanks, Ben.
0: With all that said starting thursday businesses in canada will be able to pass credit card fees on to their customers except in quebec where consumer law is prevented the change is the result of a multi-million dollar class action settlement involving visa and mastercard over what were known as interchange or swipe fees that's the money credit card companies banks and payment processors collect from merchants with every transaction it is substantial now a new survey from the canadian federation of independent business says 19 percent of small businesses are considering adding a surcharge on credit card transactions to offset those processing fees, while most remain on the fence because they're afraid, obviously, of losing business. Well, joining me now with more on this is Dan Kelly. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks so much for your time. Good to be with you. So the day has come, or at least the day will be coming tomorrow. Uh, we know this was the basis. This was all about a lawsuit uh, that was uh, that was settled. Um, what do you think the impact will be? Because it's hard to tell, and you've done some work on this too. You've
5: asked your membership about what they plan to do. Uh, so what what might the impact be? Well, I, I think in the very short term, we're not likely to see many employers, many merchants turning to surcharging as a way of trying to recoup some of their credit card processing fees. Uh, But I do think uh, in the months ahead, we will start to see more tick uh, and and add this as something on their receipts and and expect consumers, uh, in in many cases, either end consumers or other businesses to pay for the the card processing fees that, that right now gets embedded in the cost of everything that we buy. After all, Canadians pay among the highest credit card processing fees in the world. Most consumers are completely unaware that the merchant that they're that they're working with uh, has to pay between one and a half and two and a half percent of the sale. Uh, so perhaps on a hundred dollar purchase, a dollar fifty to two dollars and fifty cents just to accept the credit card that they may be presenting. Uh, so I, I don't think we're going to see a ton of retailers moving in this direction I- immediately, uh, but I do think that over time, uh, companies like airlines, insurance companies, utilities and some small businesses will look to add a separate charge for accepting at least some forms of credit cards. I know within your respondents, uh,
0: 26% said they would, 40% said they weren't sure, and 15% said they won't. And I guess the 40% are just watching to see what happens. There's always the concern here, I'm sure, that you'll
5: alienate consumers by adding those fees. No, you're absolutely right. Look, that's the, the best protection that a consumer has is the fact that they they will be dealing with a competitive marketplace. So it takes a lot to get a consumer to come into your store, even more to get them to the check stand or online to the checkout. Uh, So you really, as a merchant, are gonna have to watch carefully that you don't alienate your consumer and send them running to one of your competitors that may not be surcharging for credit card use. Um, But look, there's frustrations about this because our fees are so high in Canada, uh, and and profit margins are are in many cases non-existent as we come out of the the pandemic. Businesses are are fairly anxious, and that's why nineteen percent said that they are considering it strongly, and and a further twenty-six said that they are, they'll have a look at this if their competitors do. Yeah,
0: what, what can consumers do? Because I gather that they need to be notified that uh, that the retailer or whomever will have to tell the consumer that this charge is being added.
5: Yeah, so so at, before this can go into effect, the merchant has to actually apply to MasterCard and to their credit card processor. Uh, Visa is not requiring that piece, uh, but they, they have to apply to the industry 30 days in advance before they can start levying a surcharge. Then they have to post at their door, at their, ch- at their checkout um, or online that these, these fees will be added and it needs to be printed on the invoice. So a lot of steps need to be taken before a merchant can throw on a surcharge. It also is capped to the actual amount that the business pays, so if they pay one and a half or two and a half percent the the fee certainly couldn't be more than that. But you know just in case consumers are panicked about this uh interact debit has always allowed surcharging, mm-hmm. and you do see it from on very rare occasions sometimes if you're in a local convenience store, they might add twenty five cents to a transaction for for using a debit card on a purchase under five bucks. So again, I don't, you know, that's always been there, but very few merchants do it. So I don't think that we're going to see a huge onslaught of companies moving in this direction right away, but it's clear that merchants are thinking about it and in some cases may opt to add a surcharge, particularly for higher ticket volume purchases
0: yeah we've already seen some do it right i'm thinking movie theater um did it tell us uh, amongst others that have already sort of moved in that direction it does shed light though on what is really the root problem here is that businesses are paying huge amounts of money for the conveni- for the convenience of allowing their customers to use credit cards
5: yeah and, and and further it also highlights the 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 kind of insidious nature of these reward schemes that the credit card companies have got us all addicted to <laughs> You know, those travel points that you perceive as being free, you're actually paying for them in the in the purchases that you make. I mean, that gets embedded in the cost of everything that you buy. Furthermore, uh, you know, for the, the senior on a fixed income that's paying with their debit card or paying in cash, they're actually subsidizing the wealthier consumers free trip to Florida because the rewards points, are, are they're paying them too because it's not separated out as a charge. So in some way, this may be a more transparent way of paying for uh, the reward schemes that uh, Canadian banks, Canadian credit card processors have created.
0: Nothing is free,
5: Dan. Nothing is free, right? That's
0: uh, that's probably the uh, probably the, the the point here. Um. So in the near future, I guess consumers should just be on the lookout for these for these advisories by certain biz by businesses if they choose to do this. Um. And then I guess the other alternative is if you like the business and don't want to pay the fee, just find another way to pay. I guess debit or credit would be a uh, debit or cash would be
5: an alternative. You're you're absolutely right. Look, that example I raised, if you buy something for a hundred dollars, the merchant might pay two and a half dollars for that uh, transaction fee. If they're using our program, for example, with Interac, they pay the merchant would pay three cents for that transaction. So think about the savings to the merchant. And this is one of the pieces of advice I always give consumers. If you if you're supporting a local, small, independent business and you know that they're stretched to the max, given all the pandemic restrictions and, and crap they've been put through, uh, choosing to pay with a lower cost form of payment like cash like debit really helps them out and and that 's good advice whether the search whether they 're surcharging or not and so to be clear, it comes into effect tomorrow. I know it doesn 't come into effect in
0: Quebec specifically because of consumer laws there, but in the rest of the country it does, but we won 't see anything for it least I, I guess people have to apply will it, will they have already applied or will they have to apply as of tomorrow for that
5: thirty day in, uh, that thirty day window in some limited cases, they may have they may have been able to put this in works uh, in the works for some time. Uh, I would suspect we're not going to see more than a handful of firms move on this right away uh, but uh, but but merchants are expected to notify their consumers in advance, put signage up. so I, I think that there will be lots of warning before you're going to start to see this. And remember, if you're surcharged, it is supposed to be printed on your receipt as a consumer, so there is that transparency that you can expect. And you did find overall that uh, that your membership, at least,
0: was looking at it, but a little leery of what the impact could be.
5: Yeah, and that really depends on the sector of the economy. So, for retail, I think it was twelve percent of merchants said that they would look at that they're seriously looking at this. Uh, in other sectors like construction, wholesale, if you're buying, you know, if your consumers are buying things for ten or twenty thousand dollars and putting it on their credit card you may be more likely to put in place a you know, 2% surcharge in order to p- encourage them to pay with a business check or some other lower cost way of paying you. Well, Dan Kelly, thank you so much for the advice and the information. I appreciate it. Anytime at all.